Hello, and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics while providing my own U.S. politics and policy angles on these different issues when appropriate. On this week's Current Account, I want to take a closer look at China's economic slowdown. And I'm delighted to welcome Logan Wright. He is a partner and director of China Market Research at the Rhodium Group. He also recently testified before the U.S.-China Economic and Security and Review Commission, so he could help us break down some of the key topics on China's economy. So first of all, Logan, thank you very much for joining us, and it's great to hear from you. Thanks, Clay. Very happy to be here. The conversation I wanted to have is something that has become probably, in some respects, the biggest economic story in the last month or so, which is that China which was coming out of a strict COVID lockdown last year. The theory was that when they came out of it, there would be sort of a bounce back in China and their economy would get kind of rolling. But in some respects, that really hasn't happened. And over the summer, we started seeing a slowdown. And we've seen a lot of conversations about maybe China's in not just a cyclical, but a structural decline. Is China the sick man of the economic world, et cetera? But instead of me kind of continuing to yap, let me ask you, Logan, could you provide a brief overview of what actually is going on currently in China's economy and maybe provide a little context to this issue as to why some of this has happened? Sure, Clay. I mean, I think my my interpretation of this is that we're seeing the end of China's investment-led growth model at a very high level. We're seeing the end of uh, Beijing's capacity to use credit-fueled investment and to power growth through lending primarily to the property sector and to local government investment vehicles. In the shorter term, it's exactly as you described. There was an expectation that coming out of the pandemic, there would be a robust recovery above pre-pandemic growth rates in household consumption because of this accumulation of excess savings that had occurred that China might actually be contributing to global inflationary pressure this year because of a sudden surge in consumer demand and that there would be an actual recovery in the property sector. None of that has materialized. And it's obvious that the rates of growth in China's economy have been far weaker in recent years relative to the pre-pandemic pace, but especially relative to the pace of the previous decade. And in my view, this decline is in fact structural in nature. That is primarily because you can't really repeat some of the critical drivers of China's economic growth over the past decade into the next decade. The demographic headwinds in China's economy are well known, but the primary reason for this structural slowdown is this credit and investment expansion that took place following the global financial crisis. Uh, Simply put, that credit expansion was unprecedented. You saw from 2008 to 2016, Chinese banks roughly quadrupling in size in terms of the overall system, adding around a third of global GDP in bank assets during that time frame. And we've never seen anything like that in a single country banking system in over a century. That pace of credit growth has now been cut in half. And when you cut off credit to that many borrowers, it naturally has an impact on not only overall economic growth, but financial stability as well. The pandemic kind of interrupted these trends a little bit, providing some some distortions where 
uh, China's uh, export sector grew in terms of global export share. Manufacturing rebounded faster because other countries had their economy shut down for longer periods of time. But fundamentally, it's impossible for China to sustain the same pace of credit and investment expansion in the future. And this is showing up through slower growth in terms of the sectors that had benefited the most from that expansion in the past, which primarily consisted of, as I mentioned, property construction and infrastructure investment. There are other factors such as a conducive external environment that China no longer faces the same external environment as it did in the recent past. It won't be nearly as simple to maintain ever uh, expanding shares of outbound uh, investment of exports to other markets. But fundamentally, the slowdown has been about property construction. The slowdown has been about investment. And that's what I, what I mean when I say what we're really seeing is the end of that investment-led model. And there's long been anticipation that China would shift to a consumption-driven growth model. And that is taking place, but it's taking place at much lower rates of growth than I think anyone had anticipated so far. Okay, thank you very much. And so that actually, you did kind of hit on that it's not just cyclical, but it is structural. But let me just uh, say, so we saw slowdowns in China you know, during the global financial crisis in 2007, 2008, 2009, which in some respects, China came through with flying colors. A lot of it was because of policy stimulus on their part. And then in 2015, we saw an outflow scare, I guess, when China was kind of tinkering around with its currency. And they came out of that pretty well. Is this different or is this, could this be just basically a cyclical dip and then China will bounce back? This is also a cyclical dip. I mean, on top of this, because property, the property sector's adjustment is going to end at some point. And in fact, you know, I think there's a reasonable case that Chinese cyclical data will look a little better even in 2024 simply because the adjustment in the property sector in the last couple of years has been so severe. You know, you have new starts down 57% from their peak. It's, it's debatable how much lower you're going to go at this point. I mean, it's arguable that we probably won't go 70 or 75% below peak levels of property construction. And so there will be sort of a bounce, but that is a, a you know, a modest stabilization within an overall, within the overall structural slowdown that's underway. What's really different now, in, in my view, is that you cannot rely upon the same drivers of growth and the same policy tools to drive growth Beijing has had in the past. At a macro level, Beijing has less control over the direction of its economy than ever before at any point within the last two or three decades, I, I, I would argue. And the reason for that is that credit policy is extraordinarily hostage to past patterns of economic activity. And, and this is sort of the problem that we would describe as pretending prevents extending. You have a real problem with non-performing loans clogging the banking system. And if you choose to acknowledge those non-performing loans, write them down, provision against them, you impact the profitability of the banking system so severely. And it's a very large banking system that's very uh, inefficient you know, in terms of its capacity to generate returns. The ROA for the system is only around 0.7%. And so as a result, for a large system like this, you basically have to recapitalize it out of retained earnings. And if you write down too many assets, you're really constrained in how fast the system can grow. So credit growth is really capped in the future by China's own demands for financial stability to a certain extent. 
it's hard to generate credit growth much faster than 12 to 13 percent in the future after averaging you know 18 percent between 2007 and 2016. Right now, uh, TSF growth as the PBOC's preferred measure of credit growth is 8.9%. is at an all-time low. And it's probably going to end up for the next couple of years kind of in that 9 to a, to 11% range. So there's a real constraint on credit. Second, there's a real constraint on fiscal policy. And this is because of the legacy costs of local government debt. If you just allocate more fiscal resources to transfer to localities, a lot of those resources are going to service old debt rather than funding new investment. There are also real constraints because as investment slows, so does your tax revenue base. Most of China's tax revenues are driven by value-added tax, heavily tied to the manufacturing sector, and enterprise income tax. They're not really leveraged or, or, or linked to domestic consumption tax, which is, is down this year, along with or individual income taxes. So there are real constraints with what Beijing can do in this cycle to stimulate the economy and to try to respond to what has been you know, an unprecedented downturn. The downturn in the property sector in this cycle is just much more severe than anything we had seen in 2008 or 2015, 2014, 2015. You know, the economic downturn that you saw there was heavily tied to the property sector, but it was short-lived. And then you had money that sort of flowed out of the equity market when the government bailed out the equity market in 2015 and right back into the property sector. And then we had another round of property speculation for four or five more years. I can get into the details on that, but this is fundamentally different. It's not obvious exactly how you prop up the property sector from here. It'll probably stabilize a bit on its own, but it's not going to recover to its previous levels. It's not going to be a, a sustained driver of economic growth. And then there are real constraints with just what Beijing can do with its fiscal system. And, and this is where it really speaks to the lost levers of control relative to what you know Beijing has been able to use in the recent past. Okay, so uh, let's go one step further. So I followed, not as closely as you have by, by any imagination, but I have followed China's economy for the last 15 years. And during that time, I have heard numerous observers over that time say, this is it. China's economy is going down. The, the miracle that we have seen over the last 30 years is over. And to be frank, they've been wrong every single time. Um, I'm not saying it's any individual, but folks have been wrong every single time. So you're basically positing something. I'm not saying you're going to be wrong. You're basically saying severe property problems, credit creation has been downgraded significantly, and their fiscal levers are very constrained. Now, can China manage their financial stress because a lot of these problems are within their own system, their debt is internal, they do have more administrative control over their financial institutions? So in other words, could there basically be a way out of this? And no offense, Logan, and you're wrong. Yeah, I, I, I think there's there's two separate issues there, there, Clay. So one is there have always been calls out there about the nature, I mean, we've been warning and discussing in global markets, the problems with China's property sector, just as you've note, uh, just as you've noted for, for almost 10 years now, I mean, it, it was a very predictable and so is the Chinese government. It's been a very predictable uh, bubble. It's been a very predictable unwinding of that bubble. The surprising thing has been how long this lasted, which is also uh, can be typical of, uh, of financial bubbles, but there has been a common link between the expansion 
of some of those financial risks. And that, in our view, is the expansion of the financial system itself faster than economic growth and this unprecedented credit expansion. So the critical event, in our view, and what really changed the outlook, and, and I wrote a much longer report on this uh, earlier this year called Grasping Shadows, which is available on the, the website for uh, Rhodium Group and the Center for Strategic and International Studies. The critical event was China's deleveraging campaign, this attempt to try to control some of the financial risks that were particularly forming on the liability side uh, of bank balance sheets and the use of non-deposits, non-core liabilities as the marginal sources of asset growth over time. And so in their attempt to use both monetary tightening and regulatory tightening measures to control the shadow banking system, it exposed the fact that the shadow banking system was so much larger and had been responsible for some of the speculative elements of, of China's economy than Beijing had expected. So strip that out, start reducing those sources of credit, and the entire growth picture looks very different. And starting in 2018, you really do see a very significant pattern of growth in the past. So on the growth question narrowly, I mean, I think that this time is, you know, this time is very distinct from those other calls that China's, you know, economic miracle is over precisely because it's not obvious exactly what is going to drive growth in the future. That doesn't mean that there isn't an answer to that question, but the past drivers have all sort of been the same. It's always been about property and local government investment in some respect, and the capacity to keep that alive for as long as they were in place is really explaining sort of the resilience and the perceived competence of authorities in terms of managing some of these problems. It's, it's a lot easier to look effective when you also have you know, significant expansions of leverage and significant expansions of borrowing that are corresponding to other countercyclical measures to stabilize the system. And when we're talking about the size of China's banking system, I mean, it's, it's just extraordinarily large in global terms. We're talking about a banking system of about 56, $57 trillion in assets at current exchange rates. It is a bank-centric system, so that's not an entirely fair comparison, but that's over half of, of global GDP at that time. So that's on the growth dimensions. On the financial stability dimensions, this is sort of a different question. And the issue for Beijing is that financial stability has been maintained for a long period of time, despite this rapid credit expansion, because of the implicit guarantees that Beijing provides on numerous assets and the implied guarantee for systemic stability. So in other words, in you know more normal financial systems, you would have a, a flight to quality if there were certain credit events. If suddenly you're exposed to financial risk, you would see investors seek out safer assets. For years in China, it's kind of been the opposite, where if there is a credit event underway, there will actually be a flight to risk because people believe that ultimately the government has to step in and intervene and support those assets. The problem with that is that as the system gets larger, it's obvious that Beijing needs to step away from those guarantees. They can't guarantee everything. And particularly with the shadow banking system, we saw this rise in financial risk as shadow banks started to, you know, started to default, first in peer-to-peer -peer lending networks in 2018, then in small banks like Baoshang, Bank of Jinzhou in 2019, then in trust companies in 2020, then in small local government state-owned enterprises with the um, Yongcheng Coal default in November 2020, with um, property developers in 2021, 
with individual mortgages in 2022. And now we're getting into sort of the core of Beijing's guarantees, which are local government financing vehicles. The problem here in the issue that they only owe themselves, and this is just a left pocket, right pocket game, is that essentially Beijing itself has to initiate the events that will create enough financial instability in order to provide more systemic stability overall. They have to say, we're not going to back up all of these local government financing vehicle debts. You know, We're not going to shore up the system. And that is what's necessary to reduce the overall volume of debt to a sustainable level. But it also risks just panic in the financial markets when suddenly this huge pool of debt, which is around half of China's corporate bond market is LGFE bonds. The overall pool of LGFE debt is around 100% of GDP. Suddenly that's going to be marked to market. And you really risk not only a sharp slowdown in growth, but financial instability that Beijing has to respond to. So the point is that this is a system that basically has depended upon the expectation of government support, but that expectation of government support has become increasingly unrealistic over time. And Beijing itself wants to break some of those implicit guarantees, which involves the creation of financial risk. It's just the difficult part is everyone can agree that if you're in a crisis, we should do you know pretty extreme measures in order to shore up financial stability. In Beijing, the, the risk is not that everyone can acknowledge there's a crisis. The risk is that in order to actually create conditions for financial stability, you have to create some instability first. And no one's sure exactly how much is enough in order to create an appropriate de-risking event you know, for the system as a whole and what's necessary to provide systemic stability over time. Thank you very much. Let me do one last question. So you've painted a picture, which is China's economy is tobogganing down the hill towards the doldrums or towards potentially economic instability. So what are some key variables or transition points we should be looking at over the next six months, year, 18 months that, and it could be an event, it could be data, it could be uh, whatever you kind of think makes the most sense that if you're an observer not necessarily a participant in the China economy, but you're an observer of the China economy and what it means for the rest of the world. What could we be looking for? You know, I think in the, in the next six months, it's going to be very interesting because this media narrative, as you've said, is, has changed very quickly. It's changed from China's going to have an above average recovery coming out of the out of COVID restrictions to, you know, highlighting the risks of crisis, highlighting the, the sharp slowdown in growth. And in reality, it's probably going to shift back again in the next six months when some of these crisis events just suddenly don't materialize. So I am, you know, watchful of the fact that you know cyclical data in 2024 may look a little better uh, in China than it does today, precisely because the property sector is going to lead that process, and precisely because uh, it's already had such a, a sharp adjustment so far. So we're watching for some signs that 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 bottoming may occur. Um, in the form of land purchases in China, in the form of you know property sales themselves, but we're also watching for. I think the most important decision that Beijing has to make is what to do about local government debt. How are they going to step in and provide some guarantees for some of these assets, but walking away from others? And how are they going to manage that fallout in the next six months? The Politburo has pledged. I mean, it's not a concrete timeline, but the Politburo has pledged they're going to take a comprehensive package of measures to manage the local government debt problem. 
but no one really knows what that, you know, no one really knows what that looks like. And there's many different options available. So we're watching for that decision point. The other thing I would flag in the next few months is the October 3rd plenum meeting. This is the 10th anniversary of the 2013 meeting and the so-called 60 decisions where Xi Jinping under the first year of his administration outlined a very aggressive structural reform agenda. It'll be interesting how Beijing messages the 10th anniversary of this, since it's been obvious that they backtracked on many of those structural reform pledges. But I would expect them to there to be official messages that we're still committed to reform, we're still committed to a different growth model over time. And that's going to introduce some new uncertainty into the policy outlook, because some of that will be very sincere. I mean, the irony right now in the, the onshore Chinese uh, discourse about the economy, is there's a lot more censorship out there of basic economic momentum, of uh, you know discussions of deflation or, or now anathema. You're not really supposed to talk about how the economy is doing poorly if you're you know an economist or a market commentator. But there's also all these former officials who are talking about the structural pressures facing the economy and the fact that you may need a, you know, a more aggressive reform effort to sort of put things back on the right track. And that is all very real discussion. It'll be interesting how much of that filters into Beijing's official messaging in the months ahead. So those are just some of the things I'm looking for. But primarily, I think it's this, the big overhang, the next shoe to drop is how local government debt gets managed. Because Beijing's basic conundrum is you can't let local government investment collapse, but you cannot keep doing exactly what you have been doing because it's at the end of this road. And so how you restructure that, how you restructure the central local fiscal relationship, you know, those are the policy decisions that'll have, in my view, the greatest impact on Beijing's growth rate in the next two to three years. Well, Logan, that's a great answer. And thank you very much for all of your expertise and knowledge on this topic. I think you've been excellent and gave us a lot to think about, even if it was slightly negative on the China economy or slightly more negative than even I expected. But thank you again for doing this. Thanks, Clay. Happy to be here. Now it's time for my three, two, one. That's my three main takeaways from my conversation with Logan. Two things I'm looking forward to in my one sports fact. So here are my three main takeaways. First is that China's economy has clearly started to slow down and is going through some considerable cyclical pressure. Second, as Logan said, it's largely due to the investment-led growth model that China's led. It seems to be coming to a problem or maybe even a halt. And that leads you to consider, as Logan said, that this is not just a cyclical problem. There is a cyclical problem, but in, on top of that, there's a structural problem. And third, the combination of a severe property downfall, the lack of credit creation, and the problem of having constraints on fiscal and monetary levers has made it harder for China to arrest what is happening. And so this could actually, over time, mean that China's economy is in for a longer term downgrade. Now, there are two things that I'm looking forward to. First, as Logan said, the next shoe to drop is the local debt markets. How do, does China address what could be considered a debt bubble? And so over the next six months, maybe longer, China is trying to put it together a comprehensive package on how to deal with that. So we should be looking for that. The second thing, and Logan did not talk about this, this is just my own thoughts, which is that 
We recently just saw that President Xi from China is not going to attend the G20 meetings that are taking place this weekend. But a question will be is whether he will be able to attend the APEC meetings that will happen in the United States in November so that President Biden and President Xi can actually meet. That, I think, is, is still in question. And it'll be interesting, given that China's economy, he will be kind of coming from a probably a position of weakness as opposed to strength. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. And now my one sports fact. One thing that's been on my mind recently has been tennis. In fact, over this weekend, the U.S. Open will be coming to a close. It's one of the biggest tennis events in the world, but it actually got me thinking about the next kind of interesting tennis event, and that's something called the the Laver Cup. Now, a lot of people probably don't know what the Laver Cup is. It is a competition that was created just a few years ago between Team Europe and the rest of the world. So the United States plus Asia and the rest of uh, Latin America and so forth. And it's all of it is named after Rod Laver. Rod Laver is an Australian tennis player, widely regarded as one of the greatest of all time. The only person to win a Grand Slam in the same calendar year in the modern era. He actually did it twice. He is now 85 years old. And you can tell the players The greatest players in the world come together for this tournament because of how much they think of his force in the tennis world and and such a legend. And of course, Rod Laver is 85, but it got me thinking about a different sports figure who is even older, uh, and that is Sister Jean. She's at age 104 years old. Now, Sister Jean is only famous not because of being a sports legend, but because of being a sports fan. A few years ago, her school where she has been the chaplain for the Loyola Ramblers men's basketball team for 30 years. And she is also a sister. She's at the Sister of Charity in the Blessed Virgin Mary in Chicago, Illinois. She became famous because she was on the sidelines when Loyola made a surprise run to the Final Four in 2018. She was a sprightly 98 years old at that point in time. Her continued devotion to the team, knowledge of the sport became kind of legendary here in the United States. There was a bobblehead put out on her, which sold for pretty solid money on eBay. And just uh, recently, she celebrated her 104th birthday by throwing out a pitch at the Chicago Cubs baseball game in Chicago. Now, both of these individuals have very little to do with each other, but they're perfect examples of how much sports means to people and how the love of sports has no age limit. One is a legend of the sport. And the other is a legend of fans everywhere. Well, anyway, that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. All our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and goodbye.